Um, this, today's scripture reading is taken from Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's word. What? It's one verse. <laughs> but it's a good one. Well, thank you so much, Grace, for reading God's Word for us. And uh, perhaps I will just uh, give us a moment. Some of us need to take our blood pressure medication, I'm guessing, because we saw dancing in a Baptist church. Um, by the way, I, I noticed that we're forming a choir for our 60th anniversary. No pressure. You probably need to get your moves ready, because I'm expecting some good things from you. Uh, this morning is a great day to discuss a difficult topic. Uh, I know that this topic is full of controversy, and I know some of you are here sitting with expectations that uh, pastors address some issues that you see in the world today that are troubling to you, and so we felt like this mini-series on biblical theology would be an appropriate time to address this challenging issue on the biblical theology of marriage. But before we do, let's go to God in prayer. Now, Father God, we invite you this morning to quiet our hearts, prepare us to hear something from you. We don't need to hear this pastor's opinions or what I'm thinking. We need to hear a word straight from your heart. So I pray that as we have all of us come in with our own convictions and opinions that may come from you but may also come somewhere else, I pray, God, that you would help us to hear where it is your pleasure dwells and give us the courage and strength to move in that direction. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't often give a preamble to a message. Uh, preamble is like an introduction, just creating the background to make sure we are all understanding where we are headed. Uh, there is one thing, though, that we need to realize. No, no, we actually, I take that back. Not that you need to realize it. We need to be absolutely convicted of this one thing, not only in regard to marriage, but in regard to all things the church believes. And that one thing is this. The shifting social and moral standards of the world out there in no way diminishes the standard of God in any category or in any component. God's standard is the same. And as a pastor, as a man of flesh, I will say this also. God's standard is uncomfortable and inconvenient. I wish it was different because following Christ would be easier for me if I didn't have to change anything. But his standard, 
The standard of a high and holy God is the same today as it was yesterday, and it will be the same for tomorrow and many tomorrows after that. His standard never changes. Having said that, I know that there are some of you who want to know, when are the pastors going to make a statement about marriage? Here is God's standard of marriage as we see it in His Word, and this is what we believe. We believe in the natural creative order established by the God who spoke all things into existence. And that marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman. If you don't agree with that, you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with Jesus. Just take your fight with him. Because it is Jesus who said in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, Have you not heard that God created man and woman, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to the woman, and they shall become one? It's his idea. Secondly, we believe that sex, we hardly ever talk about it in church, is a sacred gift of God to be enjoyed within the covenant relationship of marriage. We believe that. Now, again, I'm going to poke us a little bit because I've lost count how many times church members have come to me and said, Pastor, you need to make a stand on marriage and one man and one woman. But how many times do you think anyone has come to me and said, Pastor, you need to make a stand on sex outside of marriage not even once? Man, it's good to have Africa in church. Thank you. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Why are we called hypocrites? Because we despise the sin that someone else has. And everything else is a respectable sin that we get over. It's just a part of our amazing testimony. This is what we believe, that God has ordained this precious gift to be enjoyed within the boundaries of a covenant relationship we call marriage. And finally, we believe that church is modeled after the covenant relationship of marriage and that we are to live, we, God's people, are to live as the bride of Christ. We need to understand that God's original plan for global redemption was not held in an institution called church. It was in the family. Church is plan B modeled after the family. So if you're expecting Grace Baptist Church to raise your children up in awareness of God and His Word, that's already plan B. God has called us, the church, to act like the family He placed in the garden. Now, um, I know that this is not going to be enough for some of you. I, I know that some of you are anxious still that the pastors of Grace Baptist Church are too um, inclusive. Uh, we're uncomfortably inclusive. In, in fact, I've actually heard. Well, I never hear anything directly. I always hear he said through she said, and then somebody else said, Pastor, I'm just telling you so you know. Some people think the pastors are uncomfortably inclusive and I have to be honest, I um, pretty much agree with you. We are uncomfortably inclusive. And more than that, Dorcas Lau and Laura Clement were uncomfortably inclusive 
1951 when they were going door to door disrupting old grandmas playing mahjong with the news of the gospel, inviting them to come to Bible study. They were being uncomfortably inclusive. I want to say Dr. P was being uncomfortably inclusive when he invited 12 teenage boys to learn how to preach and teach God's Word before God was done with them. I I want to say that George Quack was too inclusive when he invited some of you to church. And I think Arnold Wong was uncomfortably inclusive when he received Sherry and me. We we were outsiders. You didn't know us. And he welcomed us in. These men and women of God were inclusive, not because the culture demanded it, but because the gospel demands it. This is an old hymn we never sing. Joseph Hart was a Baptist pastor in the 18th century, and he wrote this, which just happens to be my favorite hymn, a hymn that is uncomfortably gospel-focused, inclusive. Come ye sinners, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. How many of you know this? I will arise and go to Jesus. There's only four of us in the building (laughs) who know this amazing. Can I just ask our worship team to look this up? Because this is an amazing hymn. You know, how many churches today are looking for people, church members who are sinners, weary, under a heavy burden, lost and ruined by the fall? Are we looking for ruined people? This is the theme of this grand hymn of Baptist faith. We are an inclusive church. And, and every verse, the, the, effect, the attention of, of Joseph Hart is, is on the outsiders. Come ye sinners, come ye thirsty, come ye weary. But every time he gets to the chorus, he turns from the outsiders, looks at a mirror and realizes the outsiders is him. And so he sung, so I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. This, this outsider... And in the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms that I was looking for outside of Him. And when He received this outsider, I discovered them in His embrace. This is what it means, church. We are to be the embrace of Christ. Love God and love people. It is that simple. So when he brings the outsider in, we can sing that song. He included me. Yes, he included me. I want us to go back then to this one verse, which I believe is the most important verse on marriage, at least I can find in Scripture. It is the foundation of chapter 5, Paul's big marriage treatise on how husbands are to love wives, how wives are to respect their husbands, how we are to live together. When we talk about this theology of marriage, we're looking at marriage from a 35,000-foot view. But we, when we bring marriage down to the way I behave in my marriage, 
We're bringing the theology of God right down to ground level. Because it's in my behaviors, it is in my actions, that the theology that I confess is amplified or exposed. Our actions, our behaviors expose what we really believe. And today we are exposed by God's word on what we believe about covenant relationships, either in marriage or in church membership. And the first thing he says is be kind to one another. This is the first part of that verse. Be kind to one another. And the first thing we are going to notice is that these behaviors are what is called a theological term, reciprocal imperatives. Everyone. Meaning it's an imperative, it's a command that cannot be done by orphans or hermits. So if you're here thinking, you know, I actually, this, I'm only showing up because I heard Soweto Choir was here, but I don't actually have to go to church to be a Christian then, you know, redefine it yourself. But let me just say, you cannot be an obedient follower of Christ outside of community. Because you cannot have one without the other if you're going to obey this command. Kind is one hand clapping. Be kind to one another. That is a theological standard, a quality of the heart. That's the first thing we need to recognize is this is a command that can only be obeyed in community, in relationship between a man and a woman, in relationship between church members who love and follow Christ. Be kind to one another. The second thing we may not notice, but it's true nonetheless. Um, the meaning in the original Greek for this English word kind, the root word is literally a light touch, a, a just a glancing, gentle touch. M meaning, uh, you know, a small impression. I, I, I don't know about Singaporeans, but there's nothing in my culture that has trained me to make a small impression. In fact, I remember in 1979, me and my friends were in uni. We were sitting in the cafeteria. There were seven or eight of us. And my roommate brings up this girl named Sherry Kime. There is no way when I'm sitting among a bunch of other guys and my roommate says, this is Sherry. She's from California. You can call her Hollywood. That I'm thinking to myself, how can I make a little impression? No, no, I'm thinking, how can I stand out? Actually, I failed. She has no memory of that first meeting. <laughs> so I was actually more gospel-centric. I was invisible. This is what kindness is. You know, dynamite makes a big impression. It shatters and breaks granite. Water is kind. Slowly, gently, wears out the edges of the stones until they're smooth. Do you realize no one goes to a sauna looking for a big pool of dynamite? Let me just dip my feet in that. 
No, but water. Let me soak my hot feet in this cool, soothing water. That is this expression, kindness. So in the early 70s in the West, and I'm kind of North American-centric because of where I grew up, social scientists began to study marriages because in the early 70s they realized, man, after the love fest of the 60s, marriages are failing at an unprecedented rate. And by the way, just in case you're feeling a little bit smug about saying, thank goodness we're Asia, you're catching up. In fact, right now in North American, America, evangelical weddings fail at a rate higher than lost peoples. Christian marriages are currently failing at a rate higher than those who don't even know the theology of God's marriage covenant relationships. And so many psychologists began to study these, and one of the most famous is a man named John Gottman, a secular Jew who is also called the Einstein of love. He has studied over 40,000 failed marriages, looking for what is the one toxic component in a marriage that, that couples let erode their affection for each other. What is that one thing? Because sometimes we hear it's, oh, bad sex life, or, or no, it's, it's finances, or different cultures. What is fascinating is this, that in 96% of all the marriages this man has ever studied, the one component that ruined them was contempt. We, we have this phrase in the West, familiarity breeds contempt. I thought I loved this guy, and then I got to know him. I, I thought this girl was beautiful, and then I woke up and realized it was makeup. <laughs> in, in all the 40,000 marriages interviewed, this, this is what wrecked me. He's just not kind to me. Because you see, the opposite of contempt is kindness. Contempt sees a man with earrings and tattoos and long hair and says, I can blow that up. I can change that. I, I can make a difference, at least make him presentable for when he meets my parents. That's a true story, by the way. But kindness is gentle. Here's what John Gottman says. There is a great deal of evidence showing the more someone receives or witnesses kindness, the more they will be kind themselves, which leads to upward spirals of love and generosity in relationships. In the most important verse in Scripture on marriage, he does not say, love one another yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, be kind. 
Be kind to one another. But you know what, friends? We don't need the Einstein of love to lend authority to God's word when we choose kindness because when we're choosing kindness, we're choosing to steward the affection that God has for us. We're choosing to represent Jesus in our relationship. And that's why John wrote in this very important passage in 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then this, verse 8, anyone who does not know God, or who does not love, sorry, does not know God because God is love. That is the evidence of Christ in me. Not my biblical knowledge. Not my amazing testimony. Not my ability to stand on a platform and make noise. It is love that comes from my spiritual father. Children who have grown up in a family, either a church family or a biological family, which kindness of a loving God was modeled, they grow up to be men and women who are kind and loving. And the good news is, parents, you don't have to raise then your grandchildren. The second component is tender. Second part of that verse, be tender with one another. When we are tender, we are modeling the incarnation of God. We are modeling God wrapped up in flesh. I mean, can you get your head around this? When Christ was born, not at Christmas, by the way, but when he was born on that spring morning in Galilee, in, in Bethlehem, that at that very moment, all of the glory of heaven was compressed into the flesh of a human baby. That, that glorious king of creation submitted all his authority. His power was bound. His glory unseen and unrecognized. Why? For the sake of the joy, here it is, of the cross. That horrific, terrorizing symbol of public humiliation. He bound himself. Not that he wasn't all powerful. Not that he wasn't all glorious. He became vulnerable flesh for the sake of the cross. Imagine Jesus walking to Simon Peter, an illiterate fisherman who couldn't even write his own name, the one who spoke water into existence. He steps on that boat and says, hey, um, can you help me push the boat out a little? That, that is so beyond my culture. I would like, I, Jesus, make a big impression. You're beginning your public ministry now. You know, raise the waves. Impress people. Instead, the king of creation who spoke water into existence, he comes to a fisherman and says, can you help me with this water? Just push this boat out a little. 
Uh, imagine the one whose finger directs the courses of rivers goes up to a half-breed harlot woman and says, can, can you give me a drink? That is uncomfortably inclusive. She was not ready, but Jesus was. Tenderness. I don't know about Singapore, but it's, it's not in my culture, tenderness. It makes me feel uncomfortable. In, 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 in fact, you know, in Canada, we're, we're way different than tender. We, we don't raise our children with tenderness because winter is always coming. We're not trying to raise babies. We're trying to raise men. And the proper way to raise them is the way my father raised me. Put me in my room, turn off the light, shut the door, and let me cry. Because the lesson that you need to learn when you're raising men is when you cry, nobody's coming. Be a man. So I raised two boys that way, and then in 1991, we moved to Taiwan. I'd already raised two men. One man was eight, the other man was six. <laughs> they didn't do any crying. There was no crying in my house. The problem is our third son, who some of you have met, was six months. And we had to go do language study, so we hired this old Buddhist ama to come every day to look after him. And I taught her how to put this boy to bed. I don't know if my language was bad or her hearing bad, one of the two, but she just would not listen. I said, you put him in his bed, you turn off the light, you close the door, you let him cry. And, and, and finally I said, I'm going to stand here until you do it right. I'm trying to make a big impression on her. So I stood there, she put him in the bed, turned off the light, closed the door. He was crying in there, she was crying out here. <laughs> It took me a long time to train her until, until finally I realized, whoa, the, the house is quiet. Success. I'm even training Taiwan now to be tough, just in case winter ever happens. So I walked to his door, sure enough, door was closed, she was gone. I opened it just to peek in on him, and there he was lying peacefully, and she was lying next to him, scratching his back. <laughs> Tender. Now, now that young man is six foot two, Last time he came out with his own family to visit us, about 10 at night, his family was already down resting. He comes into our bedroom, lies right between us, and I say, yeah, Brennan, what, what do you need? He said, can you scratch my back? <laughs> Tenderness is glorious. I'm becoming Taiwanese, or else God is working on my heart. Asians, you know what? I know you enjoy this story on Canada, but you're not that good either at tenderness. Is, is Pastor Eugene here? Oh good, I'll just tell a story on him. <laughs> so like two or three weeks ago, Pastor Eugene was doing a wedding, and you know, he was giving this amazing treatise on marriage and a covenant relationship and how God calls us to be one. I was sitting right behind Keeling. <laughs> and He's talking about we're going to be one flesh, we're going to be living together in one house, and then he said this, and we're going to have one shared bank account, 
and you could hear the noise. People are like, whoa, what? What? Because, okay, you know, I've 17 years in Malaysia, and every time one of our church members, young ladies, got married, her mother opened a bank account just in case you don't want to be too vulnerable. Planting money there every month, plan B, just in case he turns out to be the guy we suspect he is. Right? None of us have the culture to be tender. It's not in us unless we choose by God's grace to steward the incarnation in our relationships, then we will embrace transparency, vulnerability, because Christ died for us. You know, vulnerability has God-appointed purpose. And here's what Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness the power of Christ may rest in me. Oh, you get it, right? You've, you, you've read Paul, right, about, oh, we have this treasure, the glory of God, the gospel, and these clay pots, they're cracked. And then what do we do? We look to hide our cracks. We look to polish the pot. And then we wonder, hey, you know, when's the last time you've seen the glory of God? Your cracks are there on purpose, divinely appointed so that first we would run into community and be strengthened by others, and second, so that the glory of God could shine out of every crack. God's word does not say his light shines out of Ian's light. Shines out of darkness. I bring nothing to the pot table except my cracks. And in my cracks, may his glory be seen. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, that's us, the riches of the glory of his majesty, which is Christ in you. He is the hope of glory, not your strategy and skill sets. He is the hope of glory, not your nationality or ethnicity. Let him be obvious, and our relationships will be glorious. Finally, a forgiveness, and you know, here's, here's the awkward thing. Neither our marriages nor our church will ever steward the love of God unless we are able to demonstrate what love looks like. We don't need to sing more songs about love. We don't need to have a symposium or a seminar. We don't have a, need to have a sermon series on love. We just need to demonstrate what that looks like. And this is why Christ came. Do you understand he did not go to the cross so you wouldn't have to? He went to the cross so that you and I could know what forgiveness looks like. You think it's painless? 
You, you, you think the big deal is for you to go to somebody and admit that you have a crack? You think that's a hard thing? Your cracks are obvious. The hard thing is to embrace a cross of forgiveness. That is the challenging thing about stewarding the love of Christ. In 1 John 4, 9 through 10, it says this, and this, in this, sorry, the love of God was made manifest, made obvious among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that any of us were loving God, but that He loved us before we were asking for His forgiveness. While we were yet aliens to Him, enemies of the cross, He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means to change our status. He who knew no sin, what became sin for us? So that we might become what? The righteousness of God. That, that is making love obvious. I, I think it's possible that some of you have been hurt in your marriages. I think it's probable that some of you have been hurt at this church. And some of you newcomers are saying, no, no, this is a friendly church. Just give us a chance. We're going to mess up. So, so we have to ask a question. Is, I mean... Is this the truth? Is it, is it possible for a Christian to hurt another Christian? It just seems inconsistent with the gospel. And yet, I confess to you that I've never been hurt, not even once, by a Hindu or a Buddhist. I, I don't think a Muslim has ever hurt my feelings. Here is the challenge we have. While we hold to these lofty convictions, the truth of God, and on this ground we try to walk in a Christ direction, we live, as it were, in the middle space between heaven and hell. As we struggle to walk together in the light of Christ, occasionally the shadows overcome us. And in those moments, we need to be able to embrace the cross of forgiveness. Because in spite of the times you have been hurt, in spite of the times I have been hurt, I am convinced that nobody wakes up and thinks, how can I hurt Pastor Ian today? We are broken pots. Okay, some of us are crack pots. We just naturally make a mess. And so a requirement for a covenant relationship is so forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Can I? I'm going to close with this. Well, maybe not. 
can I, can I share the, the night my dad became my superhero? I asked the question, but it's just rhetorical. I'm going to share. Now, I think I was eight, and I was in the dark of my room, which was shared by my older brother, learning how to be a man. But my dad, and I can't even remember the offense, but that day he had done something or said something to really injure my little heart. And I was lying in the dark in my room, trying not to make noise. Because if I was going to be crying, I didn't want to give that man the satisfaction of knowing that I was learning how to be a man in my room. And as I was trying to recover from whatever offense it was, the door opened and there was a silhouette of my father who at the time was the biggest, strongest man I have ever known. And he came in silently, he sat down on my bed, and he put his hand on my leg and said, Gump, that's what he called me, Gump. Your dad is so sorry. I said that, and it was hurtful, and I'm so sorry I broke your little heart. And then he got up, he quietly closed the door, and my brother, who I forgot was even in the room, said from his bed, our dad is awesome. <laughs> our father became awesome because he modeled tenderness. He modeled kindness. And he taught us how to forgive the imperfect people that we love the most in our lives. Now, now it's possible you have injured or feel injured, right? Right as you're sitting here. One last story. Sherry, Sherry and I have a retirement flat in Vancouver. It is... Um, where we will go and have our, parent, our kids what, come and look after us. It's beautiful, can see the mountains, can see the river, but it's got just a real poor design because there's no rubbish chute. Everybody has to take their rubbish down the lift and we're on the 27th floor and, and it's awkward because, you know, I'm that guy. I'm the guy that hopes all the neighbors know I don't have anything in my life that smells. I don't have rubbish. I don't have garbage. But then I have no choice because Sherry starts to complain that the flat is smelling. So I've got to take the rubbish down 27 floors. And it stops on every other floor. And then I have to do what Canadians feel culturally obligated to do, saying, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I, rubbish, I got my rubbish. I do that every day on the lift, and people just kind of small, smile, and, and we all like look at the numbers, just praying, go faster, go faster. There's a man with rubbish in the lift. And, and, and one day this China student, not Chinese, but Chinese from China student, 
He kins on a lift, and I do what I do all the time. I said, sorry, I got rubbish, got, you know, got to take it down. No shoot, no shoot. Terrible design, you know, making excuses for the fact that I've got rubbish on the lift. And he, he looked at me, and, and then, he, then he said, sir, everybody has rubbish. <laughs> everybody has rubbish. I have rubbish, you have rubbish. My dad became a superhero in our family because he taught us, before you go to bed, take out your rubbish. Don't let it rot in your place. Take it out. And so I want to invite you right now to bow with me just for a moment. As your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, I'm not going to ask you to come down or make any public decision, but this is a holy moment for you and your God. Just, just for you to do business between this holy God who has been kind to you, who has modeled tenderness for you, who embraced sin so that you might know righteousness. Do you have any rubbish in your life right now? It's just been collecting in your heart. Just gathering a stench there. Perhaps you have been wounded and that stench is the smell of resistant lack of forgiveness. The forgiveness that reciprocal imperatives require. Or maybe you're sitting here and you realize some careless word communicated contempt Instead of kindness, you need to take some rubbish out right now. This is why the gospel is for every day. If you would just say, God, I give this to you. I I, I just turn away from the stench that I've been gathering in my own heart. I invite you to come in and clean me afresh. Cleanse me. Purify me so my life could be a suitable place for your glory. I still have cracks. I still have flaws. But God, make your glory obvious in this broken pot. Maybe you're already a believer. You've been attending this church for years. What do we really need to do differently at Grace? How does unity truly come? How do we together grow deeper in Christ? Somebody must say, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Would you have the courage in his provision to say that to him right now? Lord, yes, I will begin to model the kindness you have lavished on me. I will be tender as you were tender. And I will forgive just as you, O God, in Christ, 
have forgiven me. Without their permission, I will forgive. Pleading the throne of mercy on their behalf, I come forgiving. Now, now with no one looking around, if, if you have just spoken something in your heart to God, I want to pray for you. So if you just now had the courage to speak the truth of who you are and who you believe Christ can make you, if you spoke that in your heart to God, would you just slip your hand up and let me see it and then slip it back down? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Anyone else? Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, hands have gone up not because I have been convincing. Hands have gone up because his word, even just one verse, is a powerful two-edged sword. And his spirit reveals to us truth about ourselves. And the truth is, he included us. Not because we deserved it. We were weary, sin-laden, broken in this fallen world. And he made us the righteousness of God. Father God, how blessed we are to be objects of your mercy. We celebrate that we have been knit together with you and with each other. So God, right now, especially for these who have had the courage to raise their hands and bend toward the gospel even today, rise up and be obvious in your people. We are tired of all the polishing. We're tired of hiding imperfections. Know us as you do, just as we are, and fill us with a confidence that when we are weak, then you are strong. So be mighty, O oh God, in your people. Be mighty for the sake of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand?